Good morning and welcome everybody. You're listening to The Breakfast Show on Faith FM 87.6, 87.8 or 88. Right across Australia, right across the Faith FM network, wherever you are. Positively different radio in the morning. You're with the Double L team, Lyle and... Lawson! Lawson. How are you this morning? I'm so good, Lyle. That's good. Actually, so good. So, in the last, like, three weeks, do you know what time zone is? Like, uh, yes. it's like the arcade type thing. Yes. Yeah, for some reason, like, me and my friends have just frequented there because we'll, like, hang out overnight and then we'll go to, like, Katara to, like, get some food, which is, like, our local Westfield. And then they'll be like, oh, let's go to Time Zone. And so we go to Time Zone. And this is an epic waste of time. W- why? This is what Time Zone is all about. It is wasting time. It should be called Time Waste rather than Time Zone. No, I'm, I, no, no, you don't understand. Oh, I do understand. You don't understand because now I am an absolute gun. Do you know what DDR is? No. It's called, it's Dance Dance Revolution. It's like, you know, the machine where you like, you know, the machine where you like press the buttons like with your feet and dude, oh man, I'm I'm a gun at it. It's like, you are so lame. How is that lame? It's so cool. It's like being good at nothing. How is It's literally being having a skill at nothing productive. But it's like, this is not a skill that is, this is not not something to. Me sitting in my house, like playing, Uh like, Playing no, video game. It's no. you standing around. It's time zone playing video game. No, but it's like you press the buttons with your feet. It's super fun. No, what's wrong? What's wrong with you? Lyle, Lyle doesn't know how to have fun. That's that's. I guess that's. <laughs> Let's his see problem. what the audience is on my side or your side on this one. Zero four nine one zero six four six six nine is our number to call. You're listening to the Breakfast Show podcast on Faith FM. Positively different. You are listening to The Breakfast Show here on Faith FM, and it has come time for our first clue for the quiz. So, who am I, guys? Get ready to answer. 0491 is the number to call or text. Uh, who am I? I protect those whose names are written in the book. It's very mysterious, kind of vague. I protect those whose names are written in the book. 0491-064-669 is the number to call or text if you know the answer. And if you do know the answer, then uh, you can go in the draw to win our Revive Cafe Vegan Cookbooks Editions 5 and 6. We were, you know, hyping these up yesterday. We got incredible response. People are really keen um, for these prizes. But let's see. Let's have a look at some more meals that you will be able to cook. Um, Korean tofu tacos and... Uh, let's see, roast veggie soup with ducker. If you like those two things, if they sound appetizing to you and you know the answer to this quiz question, 0491 you'll go in the draw to win these at the end of the week. But again, uh, that question was, I protect, or that clue was, I protect those whose names are written in the book. All right, if you know the answer, give us a call right now about Lawson. Let's have some positively different news this morning. Positively different news. I'm just a gun, dance, dance revolution. That's the first... First piece of positively different news. I think Lyle's just confused about this. No, we're talking about like an arcade where you go and play ski ball, ski ball, and throw basketballs and all that kind of stuff. Like bowling. I just go in there to shoot the guns. Shoot the guns. Got plenty of gun games. You know, Lyle's favorite thing. But yeah, it just turns out like I'm, I'm an absolute legend at the one where you press the things on the ground. Anyways, hey, let's have a look at a story that is about sports and how sports. 
um, and God is saving the lives of hundreds of thousands of people, literally. What are you? What do you got? What are you smiling I'm just, look, about I'm just looking at the text messages coming through here. <laughs> okay, so one says, uh, "I agree with Lawson. He's being social, and dance is a valid form of exercise." That one's yes. for Karen. Yes, and Brayden says, "Oh, time zone, Lawson. So." 80s. Yes, time waster. <laughs> so one either way. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Fair. Like, that's the thing. I, I'm not, like, the biggest proponent of time zone. I'm like, that's it's kind of obsolete and lame. But at the same time, I yes. like doing all of those activities, and I like doing it with my friends. So, you know, God is good. Anyways, hey, I wanted to talk about a story that I came across this morning. Um, and it's simply, it's titled this. I read this article, and it's titled, How Sports Ministry has rescued 300,000 Ukrainians. Okay. Yeah. So this is like, you hear how sports ministry has rescued 300,000 Ukrainians. How does that go down? Well, basically, um, across Europe, particularly in the countries of the Ukraine, uh, Romania, Poland, um, there is like a network of over 500 churches that have been connected through various sports endeavors and leagues and, and whatnot, you know, like your, your sports soccer league or your sports basketball league and, you know, stuff like this. Um, but, oh, sorry, but, but when I say sports, I mean church. Church sports, like, you know, basketball league or your church sports, um, soccer league. And, and, you know, these are things that, that run in Australia and all around the world. You know, Christians being a, yeah, having association with one another through the realm of sports. And, and I know for me, like, that was one of the ways in which I kind of got into church was that, uh, the a group of Christians that I knew were running like sports nights where we'd play like volleyball or table tennis. Actually, the first time I ever stepped foot in the church, uh, was a table tennis tournament. And I was like, wow, a table tennis tournament in a church. And then I, you know, played table tennis and I was invited to come back and join them for church, which I, you know, later did. Uh, but yeah, this group uh, of people who play sports now, you know, the, the, the war in Ukraine has broken out. Um, and this basically 500 church strong, um, 60 Christian and 20 um, denomination um, strong group has created a network that is just serving all around the Ukraine, saving people, evacuating people, helping people to escape the country. That's uh, absolutely amazing. And not die. And, th- and this is their common connection is they're all connected through these different various like church sports leagues. And now they've all come together. So um, around 274,000 Ukrainians have been evacuated from hotspots as a result of this network um, reaching out to them, which is an incredibly large number. Um, and the thought is like, okay, so how, how is this going down? Well, they've actually kind of mobilize themselves into a very effective group uh, where they've just got basically command help centers all over the place. Um, there's 16 main leaders throughout these countries, the Ukraine, Romania, Poland, and Moldova. Um, and even, yeah, reaching out to people in the US as well who have connections with these different countries. Um, and their team is just going 24-7 around the clock. They have a f- fleet of 400 volunteer-driven cars um, on standby to evacuate targets and, like, you know, help help people out. Um, the network also bought four 50 passenger buses um, and two ambulances um, and 15 20 passenger vans, like, when the war this broke out. Massive. So they all just, like, poured... This is, yeah, like, 500 different churches and all these members just poured money in and they've gone and bought all these resources. Um, and, like I said, as a result, they've been able to 
get people out. They've been targeting cities like Kiev, um, Mariupol, um, yeah, Kharkiv, like all of the, the hot, hot spots. The hot spots. Yeah. Um, and yeah, they have another. So they have like a main command center in the Ukraine, but they have another 119 help centers that are kind of set up across um, the Ukraine and Poland. And they've, yeah, just been able to, you know, through this operation, these operations, like just get so many people out. Um, about 12,000 people pass through their centers every single day. Um, and yeah, they've been able to give people like thousands of sleeping bags and mattresses and portable gas stoves and, and food. And yeah, like they, they have been through their network, um, communicating with countries on the outside to get food in. So these guys, yeah, literally all just connected through their, their local church sports leagues that have run throughout those, those countries have mobilized and are helping hundreds of thousands of people. Um, to be able to to stay alive, basically, and get out. So this is an incredible story. Uh, it is. I mean, if something like this happened in Australia, would we have that same network between the churches? Mm. And furthermore, like, you know, how far would we be going willing? Like, I, I believe, you know, people in Australia have, you know, good hearts and whatnot. Oh, they do. Australians are fantastic when it comes to volunteering. Yeah. Australians are fantastic at supporting mm. charities. We are one of the best countries in the world that way. Yeah. Um, but this is a, this is a massive This is network. a massive scale. Like, like think about like all the buses and cars and vans and everything that they've bought as well. Like just going so hard into, okay, look, we've got these resources. We're in a crisis right now. We're going to get this done. Um, and I feel like very much motivated, um, yeah, by like the fact that it's a crisis and people need to step up, step up. But also I feel as though, you know, when often when it comes to Christian organizations and, and for you, Lyle and myself being a part of these Christian organizations, um, yeah, just stepping up and realizing like, hey, God is with us. Like God is helping us support these people and uh, we have these resources, so let's use them. Uh, and furthermore, like I'm sure as they've been reaching out to, you know, different countries and different churches and different things outside of their network to be able to get supplies in um, to the Ukraine, yeah, it's just everything is like there's been so many people who have been on board to support them. And again, this entire network just started as various different sports leagues who spend time together, um, worshiping God and, and playing sport. So I'm, I'm like, that is, that is like the best possible outcome. Cause actually, like personally, sometimes I'm a bit critical of church sports leagues because in some cases, um, it can give people license to not to not act very Christian. Uh, yeah, it does happen, and, and I have seen that, and it's one of the things that sort of does worry me from time to time with Christian sports leagues is, you know, what becomes the main emphasis? Is the main yeah. emphasis worship or is the main emphasis your sports team? And I've heard, like, horror stories from Christian sports leagues about people taking people to court and stuff over the results of, like, mm. you know, a champion, like a church uh, soccer championship like it's which just is just like, really you know and when we talk about the bible and we talk about bringing the word of god into disrepute because of suing each other and like a one example yes, right there that's over something as stupid as, as sports a game. game like it's ridiculous it's just a game it's guys ridiculous and it's like a church no one's even getting paid there's not even professionals yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, there's no sponsorship involved like it's church sports league um but it's amazing to see that through this sports league it's brought 
brought all these people together. And I think it's fantastic when churches can get together and, ha- and play some games and have some fun. Oh, it's amazing. That's, that's, that's great. That what's, that's what, you know, part of the fellowship should be all about. But when it becomes too serious, then, of course, mm. you know, that, that immediately pushes Jesus out of the picture. Yeah, but they've definitely brought Jesus back in by getting together to help You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM, positively different. As we get into the second clue for our question, our question for our quiz. Okay, so... Well, it's, these aren't actually questions, La. These are just clues. Clues. It just says, yeah, like, it just there. says no, something, and then it's your job to answer the question of who this is. See, um, I went away, and you changed the whole thing. What? It's all different. From yeah, that's right. right. Exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. We actually did it because you were away. We just wanted to confuse you. Um, who am I? I am a chief prince. So this person is a chief prince. You know who this chief prince is, give us a call 0491 Call or text that number with the correct answer and say, may I enter the quiz? And you will go into the draw. But if you do go into the draw to you know, go in the quiz, you can win volumes six and seven of the Revive Cafe cookbook. And let's see, let's have it. Let's find some, some more uh, recipes. You can, you'll be able to cook dreamy pecan pie and... Rainbow vegetables. If you like those two things, zero four nine one zero six four six six nine. Call or text. Tell us who was chief prince, and we yeah. will, you know, we'll we'll put you in the draw, and you could win it. Absolutely. Yeah. How'd you go last night, Lawson? You get blown away. What do you mean? With the wind? You didn't hear the wind last night. Oh yeah, I was playing basketball. So so before I went to time zone, I was I was playing basketball. And legit, like where, luckily we were under like a cover, like they call it like a cola. So it's like a covered kind of basketball area, but like their sides are open, you know? And the, the, <laughs> the, uh, the rain started blowing through like sideways, like halfway through our game. And then we like all ran and like stood against this wall, but we're all like drenched, even though we're like <laughs> under the cover, the rain blew yeah, sideways. sideways, completely sideways yeah, it was wild. It was awesome. That's amazing. But uh, all of us got out of it pretty because it just went away immediately. Like we were under the cover. We made maybe waited like five to seven minutes and then there was just no rain and we just left. Yeah, well, the wind blew the roof off our toilet last night. So if you find it somewhere around in the Western Curry area. Really? Then, um, we like it back. <laughs> <laughs> got up this morning. There's no roof on the toilet. It's gone. Like like on in your like bathroom? Uh, we've got we've got two toilets. We've got a, a, one of those old school outside ones, uh, like the, the, the outdoor dunny, uh, and it lost its roof. Uh, and it cannot uh, be found anywhere in the backyard. That's so. So I'm a funny. little bit worried about it because it did go somewhere. Because I've been to your house and I was thinking like the bathroom, and I'm like, man, it must it's have done the it. Roof on the that's house. like that's like the whole roof is gone. <laughs> okay, but, okay, it's pretty wild though. Anyway, talking about more serious news, um, one of the things that I've been following which has been really interesting and a little bit sad and a little bit frustrating is the relationship that we've had between uh, Ukrainian refugees versus Syrian refugees. And as a res- uh, uh, you know, typically in the West we have, you know, thrown our full support. Mm. And, you know, the story that you just shared I think was a fantastic example of what we can do mm. in a place like Ukraine and what we did not do in Syria. Mm. And, and the question is, okay, um, and, and I'm not trying to throw a negative spin on your story. I think it's an incredibly positive story. But the question is, why? Do we mm. see Ukrainian people as being more valuable in the eyes of God than Syrian people? Mm. Um, do we see Ukrainian people differently because they are Christian people? You know, the answer to that question should be, if, if anything, we should be throwing more effort at Syrian people because we're Christians and they're not. 
Mm. We should be yeah, reaching out to Syrian people and, and giving them an example of, okay, um, you may have heard lots of things about Muslims, but this is about Christians, but this is what Christians actually are and this is what Christians actually do. Mm. We provide humanitarian aid. We look after people. We provide for refugees. We help people escape dangerous time zones. We provide ambulances and support hospitals and do all of these kind of things. We did none of that in Syria. We're doing it all in the Ukraine and we are throwing so much effort at the Ukraine, which is, I mean, from a religious perspective, basically Roman Catholic. Mm. Now, um, some research has been done by this, done about this and looking at why. You know, why the warm welcome that Americans and Europeans have given to Ukrainians in 2022 um, and the contrast with the often hostile policies towards Syrians in the mid-2010s. Mm. And what it's come down to is the negative cover- coverage, not only in the United States but the UK, Canada, Australia. This is where the research. This was the four countries where the research was done uh, in the media. Mm. And so this was research that looked at two hundred and fifty-six thousand nine hundred and sixty-three articles, or basically two hundred and fifty-seven thousand articles that mentioned Muslims or Islam. Mm. It's like, okay, how are these guys being presented in the media? Uh, they looked at a whole bunch of national, um, regional and tabloid newspapers in the United States, UK, Canada and Australia between 1996 and 2016. Mm. Because that's really, you know, the time period that affects what we're going to, how we're going to respond to what's taking place in Syria. Uh, they looked at Muslims, but also Catholics, Jews and Hindus. Mm. So there's the three different uh, major religions right there. Um, with Catholics, Jews and Hindus, the proportion of positive and neg- negative articles was close to 50-50. Okay. You know, and, and okay, yep, Catholics have been in the in the news a fair bit with, the, you know, their pedophile priests and so forth. Yeah. And so it's about a 50-50. By contrast, 80% of all articles related to Muslims were negative. Mm. And so, you know, the media is the media, and the media is always going to present negative stories. Mm-hmm. We get that. We understand that because that's how they're going to build their audience. Uh, that's, that's what sells, you know. If mm-hmm. it bleeds, it leads. When you've got, you know, one segment of society, Catholics, Jews, and, and, and interestingly the Hindus were thrown into this because we could say, well, you know, we've got something in, con- in, 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 in common with Catholics because, you know, we have the Bible. We've got something in common with Jews because we have the Old Testament. What have we got in con- what have we got in common with Hindus? Mm. Like nothing. Yeah, like nothing. Yeah, yeah. Um, probably the only commonality that I could see right there is that Catholics have lots of uh, saints that they can pray to, and Hindus have lots of gods that they can pray to. <laughs> sure, you know, which mm-hmm. is kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, but anyway, these other religions had a fifty-fifty. Negative mm. to positive, whereas Muslims were 80% uh, positive. The average article mentioning Muslims or Islam in the United States is more negative than 84% of articles in the random sample. This means that one would likely have to read six articles in US newspapers to find one that was as negative as the average article touching on Muslims. Mm. So that's pretty full on. And, of course... That just that that flows all the way down through society. So you know, young American Muslims or young Australian Muslims have found that you know the negative media cover coverage results in a weaker identification as being 
American or here in Australia as being Australian and a lower trust in the government. Mm. And I think that's super sad because, you know, typically people come to Australia and by the time they're third generation, they're just Aussies. Yeah, that's true. Uh, it doesn't matter where they come from. By the time they're third generation, they're just like everybody else. Mm. And yet if we keep, you know, just sort of sidelining them, ostracizing them and so forth. And when you study the history of these religions and uh, you, you know, because, you know, it's, they pointed out that, you know, Islam has been so often portrayed as a religion of violence. There's no more violence than Catholics, Jews or Hindus. Mm. All of these religions have a history of violence. Let's be realistic. And if you're going to talk about which one has been the most violent in history, mm. my money would be on Catholics. Yeah, easily. You know, on Christianity, Christianity has been the most violent religion that has ever existed. Mm. Uh, and that's from a historian kind of perspective, from my study of history. That's what I have seen. That's what I have observed. And uh, the tragic thing about that part of history is that it's a part of history where that where it has been religiously motivated uh, warfare and conflict and inquisition and so forth to destroy people who do not believe their particular doctrines. Mm. You know, there's not just you know your standard political uh, debate. Anyway, uh, interesting book coming out in the United States. Um, from uh, one of the thought leaders over there looking at the U.S. facing God's judgment because Christians are cultural and not biblical. How are they facing God's judgment? Okay, because there's been a never-ending conflict in the United States over the last you know, five years or so. There has been uh, never-ending disasters in the United States over the last five years or so. And it's interesting to kind of come down to the, you know, the conclusion here. From God's throne comes righteousness and justice, he says. Righteousness is the standard of right and wrong that is established by God. Justice is the equitable application of God's moral law in society. Mm. All right, so there you go. That is setting up for Revelation 13 right yeah. there, God's moral law, your first four commandments, being enforced in society. Yeah, the last six for sure, but the first four, that's between you and God. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM, positively different. We have an interview coming up with Daniel Collier. We're going to be having a look uh, at some Hebrew. But before we get into that, we're going to have another clue for the quiz. Who am I? I disputed with the devil about the body of Moses. If you know who this is, 0491-064-669. Make sure you answer correctly and say, may I enter the quiz? And you will go into the draw to win the Revive uh, Cafe Vegan Cookbook. But again, I disputed uh, the devil about the body of Moses. Joining us in the studio this morning is Daniel Collier. Now, Daniel is a student of the Hebrew language, and as a student of the Hebrew language, he's going to do a little bit of a series with us, sharing some fascinating insights into this particular language, which is, of course, is the language of the Old Testament. It is the language in which we were given the majority of our Bible, so definitely something well worth studying to gain deeper insights into what the Scripture has to say for us. Daniel, where are we going to start on this subject? I mean, this is a big subject. Where do we start when it comes to studying Hebrew? Good morning. Thank you for having me here. An absolute pleasure. And I do love coming in here and spending time discussing. It's been a while. It has been a while. It's been a while. So, not not for lack of trying on my my part, I might say. (laughs) I have to let the listeners know that my wife is pregnant again. Praise the Lord. Amen. And we do have a baby boy in the way. Ah, that's nice. But she suffers with hyperemesis, and so in the mornings it's a bit difficult getting up, getting ready. So I have to be there to help her out. Otherwise, I would have 
love to have come in and been a part of that. <laughs> no, we you know understand. That. You know we I understand. Would. Of course. And you give me too much credit. When you say I'm a student of Hebrew, I'm a, I'm a bungling student of Hebrew, <laughs> learning as I, as I go along. But what I learn, I find extremely fascinating. And I've actually preached on this a few times. And every time I preach on it, people come up and like, I had no idea. It's so amazing. And I'll say to them, yeah, look into Hebrew. It's, it's fantastic. Like it really gives you such a deeper understanding of particular biblical themes when you start to break it down and look at the importance of what words are used, why they're used, and the context of the language. So when I was in college, one of my classmates had grown up in Israel and his parents had sent him to a school where all of the education took place in the Hebrew language. Yeah, wow. <laughs> He'd sit there in Daniel class and he'd just have his Hebrew Bible open in front of him. He'd just be reading straight out of his Hebrew Bible and just translating it in his head as he went. <laughs> so not, we were all so jealous. Yeah, not going to lie, a little bit jealous. <laughs> we actually have a, a study on Sunday nights on Zoom, and one of the guys that comes along, John Karmas, is a friend of mine. He is Greek. He has, okay. Has a Greek Bible. Yes. And so we all read in our King James and NLT and uh, Clear Word and other stuff, <laughs> Amplified. But John's got the Greek, and so when we're discussing something, we're just like, hang on, let's go to the scholar. John, what does the Greek say? <laughs> it's really great to have that there. It is, it is. Some of these guys just have an unfair advantage. Anyway, where are we starting on the subject? We're going to start off and look at the basic history of the Hebrew language. And now being an ancient language, it is actually considered to be one of the oldest recorded spoken languages, but arguably not one of the oldest recorded written languages. Right. Now, I don't think that's by mistake because when we look at particular verses in the Bible, John 1, 1, and um, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth when he spoke, mm-hmm. there's an importance behind the using words. words the, the spoken word. The spoken word, exactly. Like if I write down something on a page for you to read, I can put in a lot of emotive language. I can put in a lot of descriptions. I can make it that you read it and go, this is great. I can really paint a great picture in my head. But if I preach or teach or speak something to you, there's a greater understanding of the inflection that I'm using, the particular language that I'm using, the animation that I have, and the excitement I have when I tell you. Like when I talk about this stuff, I can't help but smile because it just brings me joy and I'm like, this is amazing. I want to tell people all about it. And you can't see that smile in ink. In ink, exactly. And so even though, like I said, it's arguably not the oldest written language, Um, Some scholars believe that a variation of it was spoken in Eden. It's the first language that God spoke to Adam and Eve and the angels spoke and they call it something like Edenian. Okay. That's that's the way they refer to it. They've created their own language. Well, hey, we do know this. There was a language that would be considered Edenian. Yep. They spoke. Maybe maybe it was related to Hebrew. Quite possibly because the, 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 the concepts and the context of it are seen throughout other ancient languages in the time, but I'm getting a bit ahead of myself, so we'll, we'll, we'll go back a little bit. So Hebrew actually started off in uh, cuneiform symbols, yes, hieroglyphics, yes, and they were all very particularly crafted and drawn up about things in the world at that time that the Hebrews can understand. And each individual letter had multiple meanings. And when you put the cuneiform symbols in order, it would create a concept more than an actual word. And you could figure out pretty much any single word in the Hebrew language has a three-letter root word. Chuck Missler, so if you've got a pen and paper, write down this name, Chuck Missler. Look him up on YouTube. He does wonderful stuff with this. He talks about how if you learn the, the function of each symbol, then you can basically read Hebrew because you'll be able to tell what each word means based on the concepts of what each letter put into that word means. Absolutely amazing stuff. 
as it continued on, the language sort of morphed over time. As the Israelites were taken into captivity, a lot of the language and the way it was written was altered because of the language that was used where they were. So if they went into yes. captivity somewhere else, yes, for sure. they'd sort of assimilate some of the writings from where they were. That's, that's what happens. And the language changed over time. And we can see that in our own language. We speak English. And, you know, if you compare our English with the English that was spoken a thousand years ago, you would be struggling to understand what was being said. You'd be picking up words here and there, but you wouldn't be able to actually follow the conversation because it was morphed when the Saxons came into England and mixed it with the British and the Celtic languages. It morphed again when the Vikings turned up. It morphed again when they had interaction with the French and so forth. Yep. You can even look back to if you have King James 1611, which I quite often try to use during studies just for just for some fun. Even some of the words there. The only Bible I use. <laughs> 1611 has some really great language. Oh, you're you talking about the actual 1611. Yeah, yeah, yeah I've got yeah, a copy yeah, of that yeah, with the extra books that are thrown uh, in. It's, it's wild. It is. It's pretty wild. Uh, so there's five different types of Hebrew that they've sort of broken it down into based on time periods. So there's an early Hebrew, which includes speculation about proto-Hebrew, Canaanite, and the influence of the Phoenician script. And this later evolved into Middle Hebrew from the First Temple period. Then there's a period of Biblical Hebrew, which is also known as Classical Hebrew. And this was by the time of Jesus. Aramaic was the common language at the time, but the Hebrew was used in synagogues and in temple worship. And Jesus knew and spoke the Biblical Hebrew. Then there's the Messianic Hebrew, aka the Rabbinic Hebrew, so for the rabbis. The Talmud and the Midrash, the 2nd century AD, the grammar and vocabulary of this Hebrew is very different to the Biblical Hebrew, so it altered again. Mm -hmm. There's the Medieval Hebrew, which is used to translate Arabic works into Hebrew, and then eventually the Modern Hebrew. So from the 19th century to the present, there was a man by the name of Eliezer ben Yehuda. He led the rebirth of Hebrew as a spoken language. After he immigrated to Israel in 1881, he began promoting the use of Hebrew at home and in schools. And he wanted to bring a revival about because a lot of the understanding of the language was lost over time. Sure. And so in traditional Hebrew, there are no vowels. Mm -hmm. It's just all consonants and the sounds. That'll mess with your head. Big time. Because <laughs> Hebrew has two particular letters that aren't actually spoken. Yes. Like you write them, but you don't speak but them. But you don't speak them. And that's a bit of a mind bend too, because we don't have anything like that in... We have silent letters, but these, you know, we have silent letters in... Um, in a word. Con in context. In context, yeah. yes, in a word. But these are just, you don't speak these They're words. always silent. They're always silent. <laughs> that's a wild And it really stuff. starts to mess with your head. Um, so, you know, you, you've got this understanding that everything's in consonants. Well, it doesn't make any sense to me. What they did was they actually developed a series of dots and dashes that go under the letters to let people know there's an A sound here or an E sound here or an I sound. Otherwise known in the King James Version as jots and tittles. Jots and tittles, there you go. And they have uh, variations on long A sounds and short A sounds. So it really actually brings a more dynamic understanding to the language because you can get a better construct of what's actually being said. Now, one key example of this, if you look at the Red Sea in the Bible, initially it would just be written as RD. And the assumption is that it's red because in the rid. context... Yeah, take out the E and you've got red. That's right. 
Yeah, as, as, how you learn to speak, uh, is how you learn to speak with a Kiwi accent. Just take out the, <laughs> <Sure and everything. laughs> just take out the vowels and run with consonants and you've got Kiwi. And, and just to, uh, just to reiterate, we love all our Kiwi brothers and sisters. It's, we do. It's a joke. <laughs> we just love we giving love you a hard time. Love you all across the pond there. Yep. What's really, really cool about the, the idea is that where the crossing happened, there were reeds. And so some scholars surmise, well, is it actually meant to be written as the reed sea? They don't know. Because the language concepts have been lost over time. Yes. Another one is uh, Yahweh, Yahweh, Jehovah. The oh name yes, of God. It's the most famous one ever. It. We assume we know how it's said, but because the Jews stopped speaking it so long ago, because it was such a holy name, it was never verbally pronounced. Yes. And so the actual pronunciation is quite possibly been lost to history. That's right. And we're saying what we think it should sound like. Then we Hellenize it and say Jehovah which could be just infinitely different from the original. We, we just don't know. So far removed. Because there's no J sound. Yes. So it would be Yehovah. But that's the Hellenized version. Yep. There's things here in the Hebrew language that have been lost to history, which makes it even just that extra little bit more tantalizing. It's, you know, Paul talks about mysteries of the gospel. This is one of them. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But yeah, we get to heaven, we'll find all this out, and we'll learn, we'll understand. I go to the Polish church sometimes and I preach out there at Wall's End. And we were talking one day about languages, and they go, ah, the Polish language is God's language. Such a beautiful language. I'm like, it is a beautiful language, but I think you're missing out on the Hebrew because the Hebrew certainly did come first. Uh-huh. So we're talking before about how it's not arguably the oldest written language. And sometimes that worries people because they go, well, does that take away from the validity of Hebrew? You hear a lot of arguments come from people who aren't Christians that say, well, if Hebrew is not the oldest written language, we've got Sumerian or we've got Assyrian, we've got Babylonian. Chinese. Chinese, ancient Chinese. Hey, don't jump ahead. Oh, we'll get to that. (laughs) If we have these earlier written languages, well, didn't Hebrew just copy all their stories from them? And, of course, we know that's not true from the Bible. Sure. Genesis 1 to 11 is world history. That's right. Complete world history. You start to look at all these other ancient civilizations like Babylon and Syria and uh, Sumeria. They all have a creation story. Mm-hmm. They all have a sinful fall of man, mm-hmm. destruction, separation from God's story. Yep. You've got that worldwide. And flood. Yep. Those three elements you will find anywhere on the planet. And serpent worship. Yes, and sun worship. Those four. Those four. Yep, that's right. Uh-huh. Are all a part of it. Then you get to the Tower of Babel. Yes. God confuses the languages. Everybody ends up with a different language. They disperse into other countries. You get races as a result of that. Yep. They take with them the original four or five stories that are constant from Genesis 1 to 11, and they retell them. Mm -hmm. But they don't have God's protection. They don't have his covering. They don't have his careful hand guiding their civilizations. And so as they get told and told and told and told and told again, they change over time. They they become embellished. Mm -hmm. Somebody's like, you know what, I'm just going to add in a, a jot or a tittle. I'm going to add in a few words. I'm going to make this sound even better than it does. Yes. And all of a sudden Nimrod becomes Hercules or Gilgamesh or Osiris or whoever he is in the different cultures. But it all comes back to being the same story from the Bible. That's right. And so when you start to look at these ancient languages, you get a picture painted that the Hebrew history is correct because they refer back to these things happening. And when you look at these ancient stories 
and myths and legends, what you find is that if you find two copies of the same story that are separated by, you know, several hundred years or even more than several hundred years, they will be vastly different from each other. And what makes the Bible unique and what, what is one of the things that gives credibility to the Bible as being the original story is that the fact between the Dead Sea Scrolls and the next most ancient manuscripts we have, there's a thousand year gap there with no changes. Yep. Any other ancient legend or myth over a 1,000-year gap is going to be pretty much unrecognizable from its original, whereas the Bible is word for word. No one's ever come up with a satisfactory explanation as to how that happened other than the supernatural. Yes. God having his hand in in preserving it. People talk about, oh, you know, the scribal rules, all that kind of stuff. They're just not that good. (laughs) They are humans. They are humans. We are humans. We are not that good. We we could not write that good of a story in 10,000 lifetimes. No. We could not write that much of a perfect story in 10,000 lifetimes. So we're talking about these ancient civilizations, and I brought this to you one time, and I was super excited because I thought this is a revelation beyond revelation. I have found this new topic that is so amazing, and I mentioned it to you, and you went, oh, yeah, I know that. I've heard about it. I've preached on it. <laughs> Absolutely crushed me. <laughs> Sorry, Danny. That's mean. It just means you're a learned person and we study the same things. Yes. And so we look at ancient Chinese. And ancient Chinese represents the Bible in its language. Yes. Now, get your pen and paper ready again. Pastor Hong Ki does a seminar series on YouTube called God in Ancient China. There's a two-part series on there that's merged together in one video. I highly recommend it. He unfolds the truth about how ancient China worshipped Yahweh. In the ancient Chinese language, which again is all symbols, much like ancient Hebrew was, or cuneiform, there is sufficient evidence that the Chinese were descendants from the ancient Israelites in that they worshipped a singular god they referred to as Shangdi. Mm-hmm. He was described as having all the characteristics of Yahweh, mm-hmm. which is unique. Then if you take the language, if you were to draw or write the word create, as in Genesis 1-6, God created man and woman in his image, then you draw the character for movement and the character from spe- for speaking. So from... Speaking comes movement. God spoke the world into existence. If you wanted to write naked, you draw clothing or covering, and you write removed because of fruit. And what else could that be? Yeah, that's right. It's, it'd be impossible to make that about anything else. You want to draw the word hide, you draw the character body superimposed on a tree because Adam hid in the garden from God when he was naked. To write big boat, you draw a character for a boat and put eight little people in top. Yep. Noah and his family. Eight mouths to feed in the boat. Gives you a large ship. It certainly does. <laughs> then if you want to draw a tower, Tower of Babel, you write the word unite, which is all the people speaking one language. That's how you write unite. Mm-hmm. And then you put using grass and clay. Yes. And that's the word for tower. Like It's fascinating how... It, it just goes on and on and on and on in the... In, in the you, know, you, you only find this in traditional Chinese. The, um, the communist version has pretty much obliterated, but traditional Chinese or older, and, and the further you go back, the more accurate it becomes. You, you, you've, you've, there is basically nothing missing from the gospel story no. in the uh, embedded, encoded within the Chinese hieroglyphs. And it's not until, uh, I think, 4th century B.C., that Jesuit priests ruined it for everybody. Yeah, Jesuits. surprise, surprise. <laughs> you know, and, and, and you know, you talk about Hebrew being mind-bending. Try Chinese with what thirty thousand different characters. Oh yeah, <laughs> that's the next level again. Which, I mean, like you've got five different five different characters written here for one word. Tell that's right. Like that's to us, that's crazy. We've got five letters in it. I suppose you go, well, it doesn't make much difference there. But 
their characters so much more well, intricate. Well, it's crazy than just to us. It's crazy to us. They say that they say it's actually an advantage uh, learning a hieroglyphic language if you are dyslexic. Oh, very cool. Because yeah. you recognise the dots and the dashes. Yeah, yeah, that's clever. Uh, just a few more because I, I I love this and I want people to be like, whoa, blow my mind. This is great. Uh, the word for confusion is written with the symbol of tongue and a right leg which scatters. Yes. So. Terrible story. Language is confused. Yep. Word for sacrifice is you take the cow or the lamb that is perfect or without blemish and kill them with a spear. And probably my favourite one is the word righteousness is a character of lamb on top of the character me. Yes. Lamb over me makes me righteous. Amen. In fact, if you break that character down and live in a little bit further, it's, it, it has my hand in it. It has a knife in it. My hand takes the knife to the lamb and the lamb is a king. It's a royal, it's a royal lamb. My, my hand takes the knife to the lamb that is the king, and that makes me righteous. That's the breakdown of the characters that you've it's, got. It's beautiful, isn't it? It is just absolutely sensational. Because these, these are the things, you know, God says that there are certain things in the world that are hidden from us. Yes. But if you seek them, it, 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 it opens your mind to so much more. Absolutely. gives you such a greater appreciation for the gospel. Yes. And so when I started learning the Hebrew language at Avondale, I was, I was just taken by it straight away. Yes. When looking at the words and used in context, and you know, the word for uh, one thousand is the same as army or a big group, and the way you recognise what version is being used is in the context. So you wouldn't say I've given an army of shekels; you say I've given sure. a thousand shekels. Yes, I've given a group of shekels, maybe, but it's more likely it's going to be thousands. So you've got to put it in the context. And the language itself has such great functionality, and so much of it still. Carries over into uh, today. Daniel, I'm looking forward to this series. We're going to learn more about this as we go through. Of course, Daniel's been studying this at Avondale University, but unfortunately we're way out of time here, Daniel, so we're going to have to finish up. Thanks for being a part of the Faith FM family. Join our community on Facebook or get in touch at 1-800-FAITH-FM.